Welcome to Mind Matters News. Uh, this is Mike Egner from the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence. Uh, I have the great pleasure and privilege today to uh, interview uh, Bill Dembski. Uh, Bill is a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute at the Center for Science and Culture and a distinguished fellow with the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence. Uh, Bill has a doctorate in philosophy uh, from the University of Chicago as well as a doctorate in mathematics and a Master of Divinity degree from uh, Princeton Theological S Seminary. He's the author of more than 25 books, uh, author or editor of more than 25 books, and his book, The Design Inference, is really a seminal book in the intelligent design movement. Uh, he has a new edition out of that book, which I highly recommend you get. And uh, Bill is one of the most thoughtful and um, insightful people in the intelligent design movement. So, Bill, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. It's uh, so good to be with you, Mike, and thank you for the wonderful foreword that you wrote for that second edition. So it uh, much enriched it, so thank you. It was a it, it was a real privilege. Thank you. Uh, I um uh, the book we're talking about today uh, is um, a book called Minding the Brain, uh, and the subtitle is Models of Mind, Information, and Empirical Science, uh, edited by Angus Menung, uh, Brian Krauss, and Bob Marks. Uh, and it's a wonderful book, uh, and not, not just because I had a chapter in it, but it's a really great book about the mind-body relationship and looks at that relationship from all different perspectives. Uh, Bill's chapter is the um, final chapter in the book, uh, and I think in, in many ways uh, the most interesting. And Bill's chapter is entitled, How Informational Realism Dissolves the Mind-Body Problem. Uh, and I've been wanting for years to talk with Bill about information because I think he's probably the leading information theorist uh, in the world, uh, particularly as regards uh, natural science. And I wanted first to ask Bill, what, what is information? Uh, right. Uh, you know, I think it helps to, to think of information more as a verb than as a noun. It's something that happens and it happens when possibilities are narrowed. So if I tell you that I'm on planet Earth, I haven't really given you any information because uh, you already knew I had to be on planet Earth. And we, we assume that Elon Musk has yet to send people to the moon or, or uh, Mars. But, um, but if I narrow it further and say I'm in the United States, that gives you information. If I say I'm in Texas, that further narrows it. And if I further narrow it that I'm just outside of Denton, Texas, that gives you still more information. So that's how information works. It's a narrowing of possibilities. And the, the paper in question, I, I describe it as a constraint of contingency. You need possibilities, and then you need to constrain those possibilities. And uh, it's a very, very general notion. Often when people think of information, they think of it uh, somatically, that uh, <clears throat> something has meaning. But uh, you can think of uh, meanings as themselves residing in a space of meaning so that you've got different possibilities of meaning and then you have to narrow those possibilities. Uh, the most uh, widely known mathematical theory of information is Shannon information. And what you have there are alphanumeric strings of characters and the the mathematical properties of those. But again, you have this narrowing when you have one sequence that's being transmitted, let's say as an email message or whatnot, you've ruled out all these other 
ways that uh, the message might have been sent. And so Shannon information likewise exemplifies this notion of narrowing possibilities or constraining contingencies. So that's the, the fundamental uh, conception uh, about information. Uh, and I, I think it's, it's useful then to understand also how it arises. So in different contexts, it, the information can mean different things. So if I'm looking at, for instance, uh, the, the meaningful claim, it's raining outside or it is not raining outside. That doesn't con convey any information uh, semantically because it includes every everything. I mean, it, you knew that it had to be true already. It hasn't narrowed down anything. On the other hand, if I say it's raining outside, that has narrowed down the weather from the other possibility that it's not raining. But if you look at, for instance, those claims, it's raining outside or it's not raining outside versus it's raining outside as written texts, the one it's raining outside or it's not raining outside actually has more information because it's a longer sequence. Uh, it rules out more possibilities. So, so you have to always be clear what is the space, as it were, the reference class of possibilities in which the information is happening. What 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 strikes me about that, and I've I've been fascinated for years about what information actually is, because it's obviously a, a, a matter of deep importance in the in the in the natural world. And what I notice is that the the idea of constrained contingency is very um, very similar to Aristotle's concept of potency and act. Um, that contingency is potency, the, uh, the range of possibilities. Right. And what makes something real, what makes something exist, is its reduction to act, which is the constraint. Yeah. Do, 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 you, do you feel the parallel is valid? Oh, yeah. I think that's, I think uh, Aristotle was a smart guy. So I think, you know, these, these ideas have a long history. And so they can be expressed in different ways. And that does seem to me a perfectly valid way of thinking about it. Yeah. Werner Heisenberg um, also pointed out uh, that the uh, collapse of the quantum waveform um, is uh, kind of a manifestation of that same idea of potency and act or of, con of contingency and constraint, uh, that, 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 that subatomic particles can exist in a superposition of multiple possible states, and that becomes real, uh, at least in one theory, by observation. Um, so, yeah, it does seem that this concept of, inf of information permeates the natural world. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very true. And it uh, permeates the uh, intellectual, the cognitive world. And it, I think it makes for deep resonances, uh, provides a unity, which I don't think you get from materialism. You, you uh, discuss in your chapter, um, in fact, the, the, the really the, the essence of the chapter, is the, metaph the metaphysical perspective of informational realism. Uh, so taking this definition of information, what is informational realism? Informational realism says that uh, information is the, the most real stuff that we deal with uh, in science, uh, really across the board in our endeavors. So it's, uh, it's, you know, I, I wrote that piece with really materialism as the foil, because I think for, for the materialists, uh, everything is ultimately matter, and then things have to be built up out of matter, including mind as some sort of complex organization 
of matter that works in certain ways. Uh, so what, what I was arguing is that information is the most real stuff and, and that really even materialism, in a sense, insofar as you can know what material entities are doing, it, it's, it's that these material entities are disclosing themselves informationally. And so in a sense, the information is more fundamental than the matter. And one illustration that I give of that is uh, you know, perhaps the most fundamental matter that we uh, have discovered at this point. I think our physical theories will get, let us uh, go further, but in terms of the sorts of energies we have in physics to examine fundamental matter, it's this Higgs boson that was discovered uh, in the last decade or so. And what allowed us to say we've discovered that Higgs boson, it's not that we've somehow uh, in some sort of Democritean style, we've picked out a, a, something indivisible and are able to hold it and look at it. It's that we've hit uh, some physical stuff with, with a lot of energy, and we've seen a characteristic scatter plot, which would be emblematic of that, uh, that Higgs boson. And so, again, it's this contingency uh, and constraint. It's it's this sequence of scattering, not another. And this one, though, tells us that we're dealing with this fundamental particle. Uh, and so really everything, in a sense, what I, I guess I would say is that it, epistemologically, information goes much deeper than matter uh, because matter itself is always is disclosed to us in some informational way, this and not that. Uh, and so that's... Uh, that's, that's the viewpoint. And one thing I also say is that information is, uh, in a sense, ontologically minimalist. I mean, there's a sense in which uh, this could be a material world that discloses itself informationally, but an informational realism doesn't require that nuts and bolts metaphysics be material. It could be other things. I think your, your predilection uh, in your article is a kind of Aristotelian hylomorphism, if I'm, if I'm understanding it correctly. I tend more in a platonic direction. So, uh, so for me, it's, uh, I'm just fine with it being, as it were, information all the way down. But it's, uh, it's that information is, is the most fundamental stuff and that anything that discloses itself to us does it informationally. And I think that's, that's exactly right. I mean, that's, you know, uh, and, you know, even physical theories can, in some sense, I mean, be, be an entirely recast informationally. I mean, we think of a golf club hitting a golf ball. Uh, you know, you can think of that entirely in terms of some sort of Newtonian mechanics, but you can also think of it as the golfer imparting information to that ball, trying to send it. You know, so now we even get some teleology into the hole as opposed to elsewhere. Uh, you know, and then a random golf shot would also impart information, but it would not be this sort of intentional information that would uh, try to achieve that end. Uh, so it's it's a it's a way of thinking about it. Uh, I think it has resonances with with you know certainly uh, Aristotelianism in many ways, and that I think potency act is very much in that vein. Uh, you know, and I think the, the ultimate expression of potency act is, 
God's creation of the world. You know, there were all these worlds God could have created, and you know, He picks one. Right. That's uh, right. you know, so it's the in a sense the the, the vastest uh, ensemble of possibilities, and then the, the most the most narrowing of those possibilities into this actual world. And it's interesting also how this notion seems to be resisted these days with quantum many worlds, this whole approach of inflating uh, the possibilities of what the world might be and giving them reality, whereas, you know, it seems that uh, Christian Christian teaching would be there is only one world. This, you know, it's, it's this world. Sure. Uh, and, um, you know, this world may be a lot bigger than we suspect, but it's, you know, it's this creation. And so there's not a parallel you Mike, who is, uh, you know, instead of being a neurosurgeon, uh, is doing something else. You know, there's, there's yeah, just maybe you. a Darwinist, yeah. <laughs> right? Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that would be a very evil world, but but that the uh, um, which brings up a slightly tangential question, but it, it does fit in. Um, do you believe that God knows counterfactuals? That's, you know, it's uh, funny that you raised that because I had written a doctoral dissertation on the logic of conditionals, which um, uh, basically I submitted it, but uh, I had a series of advisors who started falling off the map. One left the program, another fell ill with depression, and finally the person who took over it uh, left, you know, did not get on board with it. But uh, Presumably nothing to do with your dissertation. I would hope. This is this is, this is a diff- dissertation I had to scotch, you know, and then, uh, then I ended uh, up writing the design inference. But all that to say, I've, I've had some experience with that, and it's uh, these, these counterfactual conditionals. Um, I mean, you certainly have examples of that in, uh, for instance, the Old Testament, David is uh, uh, holed up in a city and uh, the uh, Saul is on his way. And, you know, he asks, if, if, if I stay, will the, the people of this town, uh, is it Kyla? Uh, will, they let, will they hand me over to Saul? Yes, they will. You know? mm-hmm. So All it right. seems that God does know counterfactuals, but I think there's, there's got to be a kind of legitimacy or um, the, the, the possibilities being considered in the antecedent of the counterfactual need to, in some sense, be, be live. Um, you know, or there, there's got to be something that's, you know, that, uh, you know, I, I, I contrast that with, you know, if uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. had not been assassinated in, uh, 1963, but uh, and then decided to go to an ashram in uh, uh, in India and started levitating. Would he have been elected? He would have been elected president in 1964. You know, who's to say? Right, you right. know, I mean, it's right, it's right. like it's so far out there. Uh, so uh, you know, so I think it, it's certainly uh, God's seems is suggesting that he knows certain counterfactuals. I wonder, though, to, to the degree that God knows counterfactuals, it's also because, you know, if David were to stay in Kyla, uh, then God would arrange it that he would be killed because he wasn't following, you know, he asked God's advice, what would happen, you know? So sure. uh, in a sense, uh, you know, in a sense, God can actualize, uh, can guarantee actualizing, 
you know, or making the counterfactual true if the antecedent condition is satisfied. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, so I would say yes, but, um, you know, their truth status, uh, I think you have to be careful there. I think, you know, the, the sort of example I gave with JFK and joining an ashram and levitating, you know, it's, that's just way out there. And, um, right, it might be a little too far out even, even for God. But, um, <laughs> but um, at, at, at one point in your chapter, you, you point out in comparing um, informational realism to Berkeleyan idealism, right. that uh, uh, Berkeley said uh, that to be is to be perceived. And you formulated informational realism is to be is to inform and to be informed. Right. Uh, I think that's that's a fascinating perspective on it. Uh, what what uh, could you uh, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I've got uh, you know deep respect for Berkeley and idealism. I think you know he comes at an interesting time in the history of modern philosophy where he's responding to Locke. He doesn't go to the the, the full blown skepticism of a David Hume. But, uh, you know, and, and I think a lot of the sort of conundrums with idealism, if uh, you know, a tree falls in the woods, well, you know, does it still make a sound? Well, you know, if you've got God in the picture, God is omniscient, omnisentient, you know, so I think you can, you can uh, keep a lot of the, the common sense, uh, you know, ideas, you know, within idealism. So I think there's, I think you can, you can make it work. Uh, I think what for me, it's that the, the the problems I have with this is, is that it does seem, uh, you know, it, it puts all the reality into minds. It seems, and an example I give, and it was it was funny because you know I, I was was watching presumably with my kids uh, the the cart the uh, animated version, not the three D version of Beauty and the Beast, and I'm, I'm looking at Belle, you know, and I see her lock of hair. Uh, and every time that lock of hair moves, it's not that it's moving naturally. It's not that it has any sort of autonomy. It's that the uh, animators had to consciously you know, adjust it each time. And it seems to me that's the sort of artificiality that, in my view, infects idealism, that, uh, that because it's all in the mind, the mind has to make all these adjustments. And there's not this sense of, you know, when God creates, God sets sets the world free. There's an autonomy that comes with it. And that's, I think, you know, and this is perhaps more of a temperamental matter. I know that uh, one of my favorite philosophers is, is uh, uh, William James, you know, and he has said that, uh, you know, that a lot of the views philosophers take, it's more temperamental, you know. And so I think uh, with a different temperament, I may have, may embrace idealism and uh, make, uh, you know, perhaps even put informational realism under um, idealism. And yet there's, there seems to be something, uh, it seems that informational realism is carving out something a bit different. And, you know, I, I think, for instance, uh, you know, one of the things uh, I consider is just how our words can create realities. You know, we, uh, it's interesting that the mode of creation in Genesis is God speaking the world into existence and organizing it with, with his words. So it's, uh, so we, but, you know, we do this as well, where we create, 
uh, realities. We, we say, you know, we, we declare that something is money. Well, when I say we, you know, it has to be people in authority, government, but it really is money. It is objectively money. It's, it's also subjective because it lives in this subjective world, but, you know, it's really money. Uh, you know, I pronounce you man and wife. Okay, you you really are married now. <laughs> you know, it's uh, right. you know it's uh, so you know in terms of what the atoms, uh, what uh, you know the phys- physicality is doing. Uh, that's that as it were ride separately of it. Uh, you know, I resign. Okay, now I'm out of a job. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, so these realities change, and again, I think that's something that's it's harder to reconcile. Uh, maybe, maybe not so hard in those cases with idealism, but still, there's this the sense that uh, we, we we create realities. We can't create re- realities with our words, and this is uh, Austin's notion of performative utterances. Uh, but that it it strikes me as as resonating very nicely with uh, with this informational realism, and perhaps less so with some of the other philosophical streams that I am familiar with. My uh, affection for uh, the Aristotelian perspective, for the for the hylomorphic perspective, is partly just based on Thomism, which is sort of how I came to Aristotelianism, and um, the fact I think that the hylomorphic way of looking at um, metaphysics dovetails so beautifully with what we know in neuroscience about the difference between the intellect and uh, the senses. But I really feel that Aristotle um, was very much an idealist in a lot of ways. Uh, and I think sometimes the, the, the distinction between the, the, the Aristotelian and the Platonic way of understanding metaphysics is uh, overdrawn, that, that the reality is Aristotle isn't that far from Plato. Um, and for for example, his concept of matter is really potency, which in potency itself is more of an idea than it is a physical thing. So I, I, I kind of see Aristotle as taking idealism and forming it in a way that might be better applied to the natural world. Uh, but I still think of him as kind of an idealist. So I, I, idealism is really my perspective with some qualifications. Interesting. And, and what, what completely fascinates me uh, that Bruce Gordon has talked about a lot, and I've, I've heard it from other sources as well, mm-hmm. is that when you look at the quantum world, there is really nothing that corresponds to matter as we know it. I mean, the Higgs boson seems to, uh, you know, to, to, to give mass to things. But the quantum world is very, very much uh, an idealistic world. Uh, you know that that that, that for example, uh, electrons are are not distinguishable. It's not as if one electron is you know a few micrograms different than than, uh, than another electron. Um, it's more like they're ideas that are that that are happening rather than particles that are flying around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean this uh, this you know it sounds good to me. You know, I'm not an Aristotle scholar. I mean, I've, I've uh, taught his ethics. Uh, you know, and I uh, agree he's a super genius. Uh, you know, I think, uh, and I think perhaps some of my reaction to materialism, and perhaps also to some degree, I'm conflating Aristotle with uh, more Democritian or you know more mm-hmm. uh, conventional current materialism, and that that uh, that would not be fair to Aristotle certainly. 
right. but um, you know, so I think uh, to your point again, I mean, about uh, the potency and actual actualizing that. That's uh, I think it's uh, matter has a very different feel uh, within Aristotelianism than it does. In, yeah, I mean, uh, for example, the, the, the qualities of matter, such as extension in space, I think Aristotle would see as part of the accidental form of a, of a substance, but not part of the substantial form. That, that what we think of as solid matter is kind of an accident for Aristotle, not, not necessarily inherent to the substance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the substance is potency and act, uh, and, uh, which is... Uh, conceptual as as opposed to physical so fascinating stuff it is i you had noted that john archibald wheeler had uh was a physicist had described kind of a, a, an evolution of his metaphysical perspectives as he as he advanced in his career and he started out with thinking a lot about particles and then he thought that well maybe maybe nature is fields and finally he came to the conclusion that nature is information um could you describe that way of thinking a little bit and comment on it yeah i mean he's uh, he he describes himself as having gone through these three phases everything is matter everything is fields and then everything is information now i think one way he characterized that is it from bits uh, but I, I think uh, he didn't really take these ideas as far as he might have. I mean, I think part of that arose from his study of quantum mechanics, where you had you had these contingencies where things were then getting actualized, and so the uh, and in in those things being actualized, you were also then measuring them. So it was uh, it was that you the uh, and in the act of measuring. You know, it could be this size or that size, you know, and so it was there was this yes and no. And, then uh, you know, and then you can characterize really any measurement as a sequence of bits because uh, these bits could represent numbers and the numbers then could give you uh, to varying degrees of accuracy uh, measurements uh, connected with something. And so when I when I've looked at Wheeler, I always thought that it, this was more of an operationalist notion of information where it's, you know, well, this is uh, basically what we do as scientists when we measure things is we we measure information, okay? And in some mm-hmm. ways that's true, but I don't think it really gets at the heart of things in, in what sense is fundamental reality really informational. It's okay. It's we, we measure it informationally, but um, uh, so his views didn't seem to me to go as far or be as radical as uh, it might be suggested, you know, from when he says, I have these three phases. Um, and I think, uh, I think I also cite Paul Davies in that part of my chapter. And uh, again, it seems that he's, Davies is also pulling back a bit, you know, information is our best metaphor. It's uh, for this current age, we live in an informational age, but uh, I, I didn't, I don't get the sense that he's going to be as radical as uh, as I'd like him to be about information. I mean, is information really the fundamental stuff? Is that what we're studying as scientists? Uh, does it do things as they display themselves, as they present themselves to us? Is that fundamentally an informational act? Uh, I would say yes. Uh, you know, and I'm 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 not quite getting that from uh, from Wheeler and Davies, and yet you know they. 
they, they use this sort of uh, flamboyant informational language, which I think is helpful. And it got me thinking about these ideas more radically. So, um, so we'll see where, you know, where this, this all, all ends. But uh, I mean, these, these ideas of information being fundamental, they've been out there for a while. I remember there was also a fellow named Keith Devlin, uh, who was at Stanford. I, I have, I've lost track of him, but uh, I know in, I think it was in the late 80s, early 90s, he wrote a book in which he was this ask, musing whether information is fundamental in the same way as energy. And uh, But then right, uh, some right. years later, he, he pulled back on that. He got involved in some Stanford media thing, and then it was, uh, he, he was, he was no longer going to go there. I remember seeing him at a conference in 2003 at Stanford. And, uh, so, uh, some people have caught the information bug and, you know, stayed with it. I'm, I'm one of those and others it seems have, have backpedaled. Well, I, I think, uh, certainly from my own perspective, the, the, um, uh, analogy between, um, contingency and constraint with potency and act uh, in Aristotelian philosophy suggests to me that there really is something fundamental about information yeah that uh, it, it, it's a very a very profound topic well um, let, let's wrap up this session and uh, let's talk some more Bill uh, but I want to thank you and to our listeners, uh, I've had the privilege of talking with Bill Demsky uh, at Mind Matters News. Uh, this is Mike Egner and thank you so much for listening. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.